Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm awesome, David. Thank you very much. Great to see you. Great to see you as well. Uh, so earlier this week, uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned uh, after uh, a, a New York uh, Attorney General report uh, documented uh, repeated cases of sexual harassment of 11 women, uh, including some of them who are, were uh, state employees, after calls of, for his resignation by, by many Democratic leaders, including Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer. Uh, Cuomo announced that he was uh, resigning, I think it's effectively in a couple of weeks. That's right. Um, he said it was two weeks from two days ago, okay. so I guess he's got 12 days to go. Right. Uh, so what we wanted to do today is is, is to sort of make sense uh, of, of both the scandal that brought Cuomo down, uh, provide some historical context for that, um, and, and to talk about resignations and what it is that drives a scandal to, to force a resignation. When do American politicians think that resignation is the right uh, way out of the political situation that they are in? Yes, because not every um, scandal leads to a resignation. In fact, um, most scandals don't. That's right. right. And uh, listeners, uh, you know, stick with us because David's got some great statistics on, on resignation. If you but want, we'll... yes, yes, resignation <laughs> statistics. I know that's what you woke up this morning wanting. But so we, it's we, a kind we'll... of sabermetrics episode, but uh, it, but it's interesting because they don't always, uh, and, and, uh, and we should also stipulate there are lots and lots of scandals in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the nature of Cuomo's scandal, we're going to focus on... Yeah. Sexual scandals and and scandals related to um, uh, either sexual harassment or, or sexual activity yes. uh, in this con- in this context today. So we're not covering all scandals, you know. But you know, just thinking about scandals that before we sort of get onto that about you know recent scandals that we've talked about in the show that we thought were going to lead to resignations but didn't. You know, with the Virginia Governor Ralph Northam had the scandal with his his yearbook and photos and things and and blackface that. Looked extraordinarily damaging. There were calls for his resignation, and it didn't end up happening. Um, right, but uh, sorry, we, I, we don't want to. We're hijacking ourselves here. Of course, one of the reasons for that was because the lieutenant governor was credibly accused of rape, had a, arguably an even more serious mm. legal uh, and and uh, scandal facing Not him. To be sure. And so there was, and and I think the speaker of the House of Delegates, who would be third in line, also yeah. was under a cloud, um, and and so. Context does matter in, in these circumstances, mm. but you're right. Northam, who, who is a Democrat, more or less toughed it out successfully, uh, which is a model that some, that, that um, scandal-ridden or scandal-facing politicians sometimes, um, it's a strategy they sometimes employ. And indeed, the reporting earlier in the week was that Andrew Cuomo was going to do something similar. And mm. that's certainly for people who seem to know him and a lot of the reporting from within New York politics in the past week or 10 days since that report hit the, hit the press mm. uh, suggested that that he was in, he was minded to do that so it's interesting that he elected not to do so uh, the weight of evidence was pretty strong uh, the weight of evidence against him was very strong and seemingly credible at least to my mind oh, to, to um, sure. and Ronan Farrow wrote about him in the New Yorker and uh, never a good it's, sign. it's never, you know once Ronan Farrow wants to write about you in the New Yorker your your days as a public figure seem to be numbered um, but it's interesting that that Cuomo, who's quite pugnacious, um, did not elect to, to fight the mm. charges as he as he seemingly intended to do. His when, when the report first came out, he issued a really bizarre um, 
pre-taped response. This was 10 days ago, sure. which showed I hug lots of people. And, and it was a really weird. And, and they released a bunch of photos of other politicians hugging people. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, and, and then even in his announcement two days ago that he was going to resign, his statement, I don't know whether you listened to yeah, it, it, was, it was weird because it was very, on one hand, he was defending himself and saying, I didn't really do this and or I haven't done what I was accused of doing, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm resigning for the good of the state. But his his statement, you didn't know he, it didn't sound like a resignation until he actually said, I'm resigning. It was very weird. Yeah. I mean, he said he he, he was, uh, wanted to apologize to the women, but he also wanted to it didn't sound like an apology. It was a sorry, not sorry, sorry kind yes. of situation. And he didn't say, I'm sorry if you were offended. It wasn't as bad as that. But he more or less said, their pain is real. I understand that and I've learned that now. So you sort of said the right things. However, I didn't really understand. You know, he said, the line is moved mm. and it moved without my knowledge. Well, given the graphic nature of some of the things he was accused of, I think that they were pretty far over yeah, the line. Yeah, they were, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, let, let's... Uh, let's uh, Let's, let's, we'll let's get back to Cuomo, but let's go back in history. Let's first. go back in a bit, yes. Yeah. So, so tell me about some some, some sex scandals from the earlier public. They had, seem to have a bunch of them. Well, the, the two most famous, um, and there's a Scotsman at the center of both of them, <laughs> uh, concern well, Alexander. What are you inferring there, Frank? <laughs> right? just, just making a statement of fact. I'm okay. not saying, I'm just saying, David. I'm okay. just, it's a statement of fact. Um, the, the most two most famous... Uh, Sex scandals, if you will, although, uh, well, the two most famous from the from the early republic uh, involve Alexander Hamilton and a woman named Maria Reynolds, or Mariah Reynolds, and the second one uh, concerns Thomas Jefferson and his relationship with the enslaved woman, Sally Hemings, although there's a corollary to that one, um, which involves the uh, woman named Betsy Walker as well. And in both cases, um, the evidence... What we see is there's evidence of uh, malfeasance, if mm. you will, on, behalf, on behalf of both Hamilton and Jefferson, uh, but they survived those scandals. So, so I'll just briefly touch on them. I, we, we have so many to go through today. Yes. We can't spend a lot of time on any one, any one or two. Uh, basically, Hamilton had an affair in the early 1790s with Maria Reynolds, who was a married woman. Hamilton was a married man. Uh Reynolds's husband, James Reynolds, blackmailed Hamilton and he paid him off. Uh, but then James Reynolds was caught up in some legal difficulties ar arising from financial irregularities. He was a pretty sleazy character himself. And he implicated Hamilton in his financial wrongdoing. Hamilton, in order to exculpate himself, more or less said, yes, I had an affair with, the, with, with Maria Reynolds. And I did pay James Reynolds, but that was the extent of it. So he sort of exposed the affair in order to... and, and In a, lots of words. Yes. Well, Hamilton did everything in lots of words. He wrote at length about this in 1797, well after the fact. He wrote a lengthy pamphlet. And Joanne Fre our friend Joanne Freeman is very, very good on this. Uh, and if you want to read more, um, have a look at her, her book, Affairs of Honor. Um, uh, Hamilton owned up to the affair in order to get himself out of the, the, the charge that he was guilty of sort of financial irregularities. Mm. So it was, it, was, it was the opposite of what we have in contemporary politics where kind of financial misdeeds might not necessarily get you, but sexual ones might. We're mm. going to talk about this sure. in the next few minutes. Uh, it was kind of the reverse in the 1790s where he said, yep, I had the affair, but that was it. And seemed to walk away from it. Interestingly, 
a Scottish newspaper man named James Callender, who's a bit of a scandal monger, mm. uh, and was at that point an ally of Thomas Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans, is the one who published, brought this affair to the, to the attention of the public in 1797. We go forward five years in 1802, Callender, who was then um, estranged from Jefferson for reasons we don't have to get into yet, and was in Richmond, Virginia, publishing a newspaper. It was Callender who published the allegation that Jefferson had fathered children with Sally Hemings, a woman uh, whom he enslaved. And um, that became a staple of American politics for the remainder of Jefferson's life. But certainly Jefferson was then president of the United States, uh, was certainly an issue in the 1804 election, but didn't seem to do him, it did his reputation some harm, but it didn't do him any electoral harm. He won hmm. re-election easily. So in both of those, these are the most famous scandals, certainly from my period, but in both cases they... Um, they sort of ride out the storm. Yes. Now, I mean, I have a hypothesis here that that uh, I'm playing with. I want you. I want your thoughts on. It strikes me that times in American history when you have these scandals become scandals um, are moments of, of high partisanship, and when we think about you know the, the the both the two people involved that you mentioned, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. Those are you know leaders of respective political parties, in as much as political parties earlier public, etc. But it's a moment of very high partisanship, and that's why they end up getting attacked for their sexual activities. I think that's a really interesting thesis, and let's test that over okay, as we go through okay. history. But I think I but in answer to your in answer to that statement. Um, as a kind of premise, you're right in terms of the, the context in which these scandals take off. It wasn't like politicians weren't having sex. Other politicians yeah. weren't having sex in the 1790s like or 1890s. Ben Franklin is, 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 is enjoying the company of lots of, of, of women, right. some of whom are, are, yeah, you got the idea. Yeah, I do get that. <laughs> and so I think you're right. I think partisanship is a key feature. Uh, and, and when we get to the question of who resigns or not, it's going to be an important, important fact. Yeah. So I think... They're both able to ride it out, so they're embarrassed by the exposure of mm. these scandals. And the scandals, to some extent, I mean, Callender's a case in point. Uh, he's, a, he's a partisan figure and essentially a partisan pen for hire. Um, so I, I think partisanship, I think that's a really important mm. point, David. But let's, okay. let's see if we can trace a through line yes, to that. So okay. let's, let's go through the... So, the tell us about the Petticoat Affair, well, David. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, thinking about times in which lots of... Partisanship. The Jacksonian period is a time when we have the emergence of new political kind parties, proper political parties, and, and really bitter, acrimonious politics as a consequence. Um, and, and there's a couple of examples from from the Jacksonian period that are sort of worth touching on. One has to do with, with Jackson himself. Um, Jackson uh, marries uh, his wife Rachel in in 1791. Uh, by all accounts, he was extraordinarily fond of her. She had been previously married to a, a, a very abusive man, an alcoholic, uh, who she got divorced from, or at least she thought she had, because uh, it gets because they discover after that uh, she and and Andrew Jackson are married that he had not finalized all of the paperwork. So he and ja she and Jackson have to remarry in seven. So the the ex husband, the ex husband, had not filed right. the sort of final final paperwork to to terminate their marriage so she, 
Rachel and Andrew have to get remarried in 1794. When he runs for president, the second time he runs for president in 1828, this becomes a major issue in the election because she, it is claimed that she was a bigamist for being legally married to two men at the same time. And, and this was an election in which there's lots of very, you know, cantankerous sniping at, at, at the candidates and their families for every various and sundry things. Um, John Quincy Adams, I think, had a pool table or something, and people said that was scandalous, right? So, like, any little thing is getting... And he was there. called a pimp for the Tsar of Russia, if I remember. Yes, is well, that which, true during the uh, election? You know, you, you call people anything you want to to try to get elected. Uh, so Andrew Jackson wins that election, but Rachel dies between when uh, the election happened and when he's inaugurated. And he attributes her death to the attacks upon her character during the campaign. Uh, and, you know, he is someone, uh, if you know anything about Andrew Jackson, he holds grudges pretty strongly. And, and, and I think that sort of shapes the politics uh, of the era. Uh, but there were other sort of uh, sort of scandals in the same uh, time period that are in some ways connected. One of the more famous has to do with uh, John Eaton, who was Jackson's secretary of war. He had a relationship uh, with a woman named uh, Peggy Timberlake who unfortunately for uh, Eaton was married at the time to a, a man named uh, John uh, Timberlake. If only it had been Justin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, John Timberlake uh, commits suicide while learning about his wife's infidelity, and Eaton marries uh, what is now a widow, uh, Peggy, uh, becomes Peggy Eaton. Um, and she is attacked not only in the press uh but as actually attacked by uh other members of the cabinet's wives like they basically ostracize her from uh, washington society uh which jackson sees in some ways as a similar kinds of attacks that his uh, wife had during the campaign uh, and so it's sort of another sort of ways in which there are the sexual politics and the political uh you know uh, partisanship are, are sort of overlapping with one another. Um, and there's a whole number of other scandals during this time period uh, about sexual questions. There's one about uh, Richard Mentor Johnson, uh, who was a congressman from Tennessee, a Democrat, who was living openly with an enslaved woman, a woman, Julia Child, uh, Chin, and with whom he had children, and he was politically ostracized for that. But one thing about that particular scandal is that after she died, he his political fortunes improve, and he's actually um, vice president under Martin Van Buren. Yeah, so the but sexual scandals are things that people can come back from. Um, James Henry Hammond is another politician of the air who comes back from sexual scandals. He gets uh, accused and, and seems to be guilty of having. Uh, um, Affairs with his nieces, who were teenagers, and he was significantly older in the 1840s, uh, and is politically ostracized for that, but comes back from that as an elected to the Senate in 1857. Um, he was also having sexual affairs with, with a number of enslaved women and, and other people, so he's a pretty... Uh, I'm not quite sure what the right word is yeah, for James I was, Henry I was Hammond. waiting to see where you were going with that, David. <laughs> yeah, you could think of lots of really awful words for him that may not always be appropriate for the podcast. He also had his politics were awful. Um, but um, 
So, so David, is there a distinction to be drawn as we take this conversation mm. forward yeah. between behavior which is deemed scandalous because it might transgress the mores of the time, mm. like Hamilton's... Ill uh, is there a difference, for example, mm. between Alexander Hamilton having an affair with Maria Reynolds mm. and they are consenting adults, both married, but, but they haven't broken any laws, as opposed to... Thomas Jefferson, for example, mm. having a sexual relationship with a woman he enslaved, which, of course, wasn't contrary to the law at the time, but we would consider... I guess the distinction I'm trying to draw as we go through... We mm. have lots of examples today. Mm. There's a difference between Andrew Cuomo's sexual harassment, which seems to violate the law, and if, if the facts are to be... If the facts that we've mm. been told are true is assault in some cases, yeah. as opposed to violating the mores of the time. Do we need to draw that distinction? Yeah. If, only, if only to make clear to our listeners that we understand that not all of this behavior is the same. But I think, does that also factor into whether people survive or not politically? Well, well, does, does that make sense? Yeah, no, the interesting thing about all these cases we've talked about is all these people stick it out. I mean, none of these people resign for these things. I mean, some of them were harmed politically in the short term, uh, but they were not political, they were not scandals that ended their career. Right. right? Um, sometimes other things ended their careers, like deciding to duel somebody in you know New Jersey. Um, but you know, in all these cases, they, they these are figures who were subject to public scrutiny to various degrees because of their uh, you know activities, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, but these were not so um, damaging. I think that that they you know ended up uh, you know. Some of them got, uh, Hammond got voted out of office briefly, but uh, the rest of them were able to be politically successful in light, despite these kinds of things. Um, you know, another example from the later in the 19th century, again, at a time of very high partisanship, um, Grover Cleveland gets, a, a, there's a scandal in 1884 where... Uh, Mama, where's my, my pa? pa? Yeah, so he was... Um, it was accused of, of paying a woman uh, child support, and uh, he admitted it. He said, "Yes, I fathered a child with this woman, and I paid uh, for." And he won the election, and and the uh, uh, the scandal sort of disappeared in part because because he owned up to it, um, even though that was used. I, but it was used as a political attack, like much of these were. It was not so much the activity that was. In and of itself, it was it was the, the way it was used in a political context that made it um, scandalous. Well, and of course, blackmail only works, or, or leverage like this only works. Again, I'm not talking about mm. uh, transgressions of the law in this case. I'm talking about extramarital infidelity, you know, infidelity and, and things like that. Once you own, if it's kept secret and if it can be used against you, mm. so, so Hamilton admitting the relationship with Maria Reynolds takes the sting out of that particular accusation or, or, or Grover Cleveland saying, yep, because there's not a whole lot left to talk about unless it's questions of did you use public money for this or yes, that right. or, or, you know, if there's no cover-up and you admit it, if you're willing to deal with the embarrassment. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what you're embarrassed about and the degree sure. of it, right? I mean, I think one of the things that, that sort of you see starting the early republic and you see it in various degrees at different points in american history is this idea that politicians need to not only be good 
at their job, but they also need to be upstanding moral Virtuous. examples. And virtue is is embedded within the republic, and and the republic can only be virtuous as a republic if it's led by virtuous people who are voted into office by virtuous. People. There's all this kind of, you know, moralizing that goes into to American politics from the very beginning, um, despite the fact that you know lots of American politicians engage in non-virtuous activities on a fairly regular basis. Um, you know, we see that a lot in the 20th century. We see all kinds of American politicians doing various and sundry awful things in terms of their relationships with women um in fact you're hard-pressed to find politicians that that don't do that in some ways um yeah, and often the press sort of look the other way the opposition look the other way because i think they all always recognized uh it wasn't a route they wanted to go down well and the, and in much of the middle of the 20th century there was a tacit agreement, a gentleman's agreement, mm. this is very gendered, but deliberately so, between the press corps and politicians to not report this stuff. So historians have, you know, uncovered a lot about the activities of John Kennedy and people like that, but it, those were not widely known at mm. the time, or FDR or what have you. But, you know, Wilson. Yeah, or, uh, yeah but, all. but there was a sort of tacit agreement, and so it's not until the latter part, it's really the past... 30 years, maybe 40 years that this really takes off. I mean, I think it really, the modern iteration of this, the, mm. or the turning point, is Gary Hart in 1988. Gary Hart's presidential campaign in 1988. Mm. When Gary Hart, who was widely reputed to be a womanizer, uh, more or less challenged the press, he was a senator from, from Colorado, to follow him. <laughs> they followed him, him and found him. Uh, on a boat called the Monkey Business, going to Bimini with a with a woman, not his wife, mm. um, and and I, I I think that was a turn because that was kind of the end of Gary Hart. Uh, he went on to have a he stayed in the Senate, so in that mm. sense, uh, he's an interesting transitional figure because he continued to have a political career. Mm. He was a prominent Democrat, remains a prominent Democrat, has kind of emerged as an eminence grease within the party even to this day. But that was the end of his presidential ambitions, and for a while he was a little bit. Toxic. Would you agree with that? Oh, the well, I, I think that at least the yes, I think that 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 moment in the late eighties, early nineties is when this I think becomes prominent. So I, I spent some time uh, looking at, at since you mentioned statistics at the beginning, statistics about resignations, right? So we've had uh, one president resign, we know about that. We've got two vice presidents resign. This is, I guess, a trivia question. Frank, can you name the two vice presidents who've resigned? I cannot. Well, sorry. Let me think. Calhoun. Okay. John C. Calhoun, 1832, resigned because he disagreed with the president's political positions on things. And it was after he'd gotten elected to the Senate from South Carolina, and so there was like an empty seat. So arguably, he resigned as a matter of principle. Yes, uh, from his perspective, yes, and he was there was the the seat was only empty for a few weeks, because it was in that interval between the election and, and taking office. And Spiro Agnew is the second one who resigned, right? but he didn't resign. I mean, he was fabulously corrupt. Yes, as Rachel Maddow's podcast on him shows, uh, Bagman, which I can recommend. Mm. But he was, but he did not resign for sexual impropriety, as far as we know. As, yes, he had other issues, right? So we, we had two of those. Uh, but if we're looking sort of the next level down uh, politically in terms of uh, governors like, like Andrew Cuomo, uh, there have been 218 governors who have resigned 
um, and 219 resignations because one governor resigned. <laughs> one governor resigned twice. Okay. Do, no, this is the joke. Yeah, this, this is what I'm not going to get, but I'm going to guess he's from Illinois because of Illinois politics. But no. No. Who he, resigned twice? Andrew Johnson. Ah. Because he was governor of Tennessee. He resigned to jump become the senator from Tennessee uh, in, in the 1850s. And then in 1865, he resigned as the military governor of Tennessee to become vice president. Right. Okay. All right. So, so, okay, so, so, so of the 218 governors who've resigned, or 19, depending on how we want to count. Okay, yes. How many? So why did they resign? Okay, so, so the vast majority of reasons why people resign from public office in the, in the United States is because they are elected or appointed to another office. So they're either, you know, elected. So Andrew Johnson's a good case in point. Exactly. Or people who are elected president or people who decide to get an appointment to the Supreme Court or to be an ambassador to something or other. Um, that's the vast majority of it. It seems that uh, 76% uh, are of, of, of people who are resign from the governor's uh, mansion in various states do so because of that. About 17% resign uh, because of illness or for some other personal or, or political non-scandalous reason. Um, people who have cancer, people who get ill from various other things and what have you. Uh, one guy resigned because he was not getting paid enough and he said, I'm just not the, 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 you know, pursue other things. Um, and a relatively small number uh, have resigned from governor's offices, uh, including Cuomo. Um, only 7% for misconduct. 7%. 7% of the people who have resigned. So for misconduct. And do yes. you know how many, can you break this down? Yeah, well, the interest... Uh, it's like a podcast with Nate Silver. Yes, I'm... <laughs> Is that an insult or a compliment? I'm not sure. Um, he has more listeners than we do, so maybe. Um, the interesting thing, I was looking at, at the governors who did this. The vast majority of those who resigned for scandalous reasons have done so in the past 30 years. Um, some, of the, uh, some of these are recent, like uh, obviously Cuomo. The previous, going back one, uh, the skipping one, governor of New York, Elliot Spitzer, uh, was visiting prostitutes. It was a similar kind of vibe, wasn't there? In uh, that? Uh, yeah, and, and but Spitzer was very popular and, and until all that came out. Um, Jim McGreary of New Jersey in 2004. Um, there's a bunch of people who were who resigned recently for financial reasons. Um, there was a governor of Oregon and there was a governor, a governor of Arkansas and, and a governor of Alabama. Well, in Alabama, he used state funds to cover up an affair. Uh, but there have been most people who have resigned, governors who have resigned have done so in the past 30 years. It's really actually quite striking. Um, if you look back you know, prior to that, there, there, there's two who resigned during Reconstruction. Um, and both of those, I think, are, are politically motivated. Those are Southern Republican governors who were sort of being pushed out for, for political reasons. Uh, and there's a couple who are, are pushed out, who, who resign uh, for uh, fraud reasons uh, during the progressive era when they're trying to strike out, stop out corruption. Um, other than that, there, there are very, very few uh, res scandals that lead to resignations of governors. 
And if you look at Congress, you have a very similar uh, picture. We've had 230, 300, sorry, 323 senators who have resigned. And uh, most of them have resigned because they've been appointed to some other office, either in the cabinet or, or an ambassadorship or something. Uh, but you've seen a striking increase in the number of, uh, of resignations in the past couple of decades for scandalous reasons, both in the, actually in the House and the Senate. Uh, Bob Packwood in 1995, Bob Livingston in 1999, um, Al Franken a few years ago, uh, Tim Murphy in Pennsylvania. Um, but the, the, you know, prior to that, you now most of the resignations are, are for ill health or for advancement of higher office. There is one, uh, bubble in, in 1861 when a bunch of Southern senators resigned for other opportunities. Um, <laughs> many of those people re returned to, to try to reclaim their jobs later on uh, with various levels of success. Um, there's a senator from Kentucky, Happy Chandler, who resigned in uh, 1945 to become commissioner of baseball. Um, and so you have a few people resigned to, to pursue other actual other options uh, or to do other things. Um, but there does seem to be a definite upswing in the past couple of decades for people being pushed out of office, being forced to resign or choosing to resign, uh, both at, at, in Congress and in the governor's mansions uh, for sexual reasons in the past few decades. Yeah, and there are lots of, you know, you mentioned some of the notable ones. Um, we also might consider the ones who didn't resign. And, 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 you know, so, so um, well, I, th I think there's a distinction be to be drawn between those who kind of got it out, as it were, mm. um, and the ones for whom the electorate solved the problem. So with a lot of congresspersons, because they're up for a re-election every two years, they don't necessarily have to resign. Although the one woman on this list, Katie Hill from California, mm. is a really interesting case because she was a member of Congress and... Um, and she resigned in 2019, uh, and, and hers, is, hers is an interesting case because she is she's the only woman I could think of. And I was talking to my daughter about mm. this, who's very interested in politics uh, before yesterday, and she, she had reminded me about Katie Hill's circumstances. Uh, and, and the absence of women on this list is pretty, is, is pretty dramatic. Well, it's also partially an artifact of the, the, the number of how male-dominated American politics continues sure. to be. But sure, yes. but, 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 and Katie Hill's resignation um, was ostensibly because, and she was a Democrat from California, because, or she, yeah, she is a Democrat and is from California. She was then in Congress representing California. Um, it was revealed that she was having, she had a relationship with one of her staffers. But, what really seems to have got her wasn't that relationship. If every member of Congress who had a relationship with their staffer had to go, there wouldn't mm. be anybody in Congress probably. Uh, but because she was self-identified, she self-identifies as bisexual, mm. and there were images that were released. In fact, the Daily Mail, the British newspaper, was the one that published them. Um, uh, not suitable for work images that were mm. circulated uh, of, of Katie Hill. And so to some extent, on one hand, yep, a relationship with a staffer would seem to be grounds for, for, for resignation. Uh, the fact that the, the fact that it was a woman who was forced to resign and mm. one of the most prominent resignations really after Al Franken, these were both high profile Democrats. In fact, um, 
Al Franken in 2018 for something closer to what Andrew Cuomo was accused of doing and Katie Hill for this relationship are, are, are two interesting cases. But I'm also interested in those who don't resign. So mm. I'm thinking about... Um, do you remember Mark Sanford? Yes. He's a governor who didn't resign yeah. for hiking the Appalachian Trail. Trail. Yeah, so so he, nice. back in 2009, became the... Butt of jokes around the world, but especially on late night in the United States, because he disappeared as governor of South Carolina for several weeks because he was visiting his his mistress in Argentina and claimed that he was hiking the Appalachian Trail. He was impeached, but he actually kind of he was he, censured and then served out his term, term and, and and is still a viable political figure. In yeah, sense. yeah. So he because well, because he was somebody you would have thought at the time because I mean the the. the he was ripped by the likes of John Stewart and everybody else back then, but he he stuck it out. Well, I mean, one thing that strikes me about about resignations and and who ends up resigning and who who doesn't, you know, it's it's really about political power and polit and, and how, how, the the political support that you have, much more than it is about the um, grieve uh, the the severity of the charges against a particular politician. Right, that that there have been many politicians who've been accused of really heinous activity who were able to stick it out because they were politically popular and had support, um, whereas by comparisons, what appear to be much more minor kind of uh, infractions of, of whatever kind of moral code that the country has, um, you know, are forced to resign because their their political uh, support has is, is less is more tenuous. Uh, I think, you know, um, if we're trying to sort of calibrate who ends up having to resign, it's people who were in a very tenuous position to begin with. Um, one thing that strikes me about, you know, and thinking about Franken and, and Katie Hill, um, you know, they both resign in the context of the Me Too movement in, in which the Democratic Party is is pushing very hard for, for having, uh, you know, holding uh, men, usually, but... Uh, people accountable for their activities in the workplace in particular, but also in terms of their, their conduct generally. Um, you know, and, and I think the Democrats, especially in the past four or five years, have, have been um, much less willing to overlook these kinds of things than some Republicans are. One can think of all of the Republicans who supported President Trump despite all of his various actions and words and what have you, um, and were willing to overlook those because they saw that as politically expedient. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the sort of things we need to sort of think about. Yeah, I mean, with regard to the partisan dimension to it, you made the point, and you've got the data to back it up, mm. so I, I'm not, I think you're absolutely spot on, that in the past 30 years... Since, say, 1988 or certainly 1990 mm -hmm. to the present, this has been the kind of behavior that's much more difficult to get away with. It's much more likely to be fatal to one's career. And we have far more people resigning both in uh, from governorships but also from the Senate mm -hmm. and Congress as a result. Um, and and the, the evidence you provided is, is, is incontrovertible, it seems to me. Yet we have Donald Trump. Yeah, uh, because one of the arguments uh, I made earlier is, well, sometimes the electorate solves this. People don't have to resign because they don't get reelected. Um, and, and maybe Mark Sanford was a kind of uh, 
early early uh, warning for for what was to come because Donald Trump we we had the Access Hollywood tape right before the election in in October of two thousand sixteen, mm. which you know was pretty damning when it came to uh, his attitudes about about women and it didn't have any impact both before that election but certainly since that election during his presidency the press did a pretty good job of ferreting out lots of information about his behavior um, including in the recent past when it came to uh, particularly areas of sexual harassment and and malfeasance none of it mattered i mean i don't think uh, it Mm. didn't help his popularity obviously i mean his popularity never cracked 50 percent it kind of remained in the low 40s throughout his presidency but it also didn't go down that much. Mm. And I don't think in all the um, catalog of things that people might hold against President, former President Trump that it mattered in the 2020 election. I don't think his, yeah. his you know, all this stuff was out in the, this, this goes to my earlier point that if stuff's out in the open and you're not embarrassed by it, it can't be used against you very effectively. And seemingly his, you know, the, the fact that he has no sense of shame mm. about this stuff or just denied it and blundered. Blund- oh, but so, oh, yeah. so I guess what I'm asking, sorry, this is a long-winded question, David. How do, how do you reconcile Trump and Trumpism with your thesis that this has become more prevalent as a cause for resignation and, and the end of somebody's political career in the past 30 years? Because he would seem to be the well, so, so exhibit A to refute that. One of the things about the Republican Party right now is the Republican Party is, even though there are splits within it, relatively homogenous. And the support for Trump was both you know, deep and pretty widespread among people who identified as Republicans, at least in the last election, or at least as, as Trumpists in the, in the last election, right? So it'd be very hard for those people to, to be peeled away from Trump. He, no matter what, he, you know, he said, if I shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, people, you know, the, the people who love me will still love me. I think uh, he's right about that. I mean, I whereas I think the Democratic Party at the moment um, is both a bigger party in terms of the number of people who identify as Democrats, but also a much more diverse party uh, in terms of its, uh, both in terms of its demographics, but also in terms of its ideology. Um, and one of the things I think happened, has happened with, with Democrats who, uh, in, in recent years, and I think Cuomo might be an example of this, is that, you know, the, part of what brought him down was the, this AG report, which was extraordinarily damning. But I think, you know, Cuomo had already had a lot of enemies within his own party prior to that. You know, he had, had a reputation as being something of a bully, um, he had the really damaging uh, information about him underreporting the number of COVID deaths in care homes in New York, lost him a lot of allies that he previously had, and so that nobody came to his defense. Right, There was nobody in the past week who, who's, who stood up for Andrew Cuomo. Rightly so. Nobody should stand up for him, but lots of people stood up for Donald Trump in all the things he was attacked for, and I think part of that has to do with the the, the, the demographic, you know, the, the, demographics of the party and the ways in which the Democratic Party itself is uh, there's a a war going on right now in the Democratic Party between the more progressive wing of the party um, and the the more sort of moderate wing about what the future of the party is, what kinds of of political figures they should put forward you know, and Cuomo was very much in the sort of moderate old school camp Well, and and 
when you talk about demography, I mean, women are a much more important part of the Democratic oh, coalition oh, than a, they are in the Republican that's, coalition. That's a very it's, important point. So, so it's easy to consider, you know, Al Franken, if Al Franken were a Republican from a conservative state, I don't think he has to resign. I think he I think he sticks it out. And it's probably, if not forgotten by now, mm. uh, just it, it, the story blows over. Whereas there's no way coming from a state where Democrats are quite progressive, like Minnesota. Yeah. There's no way he could. He, he, I mean, so, so Al Franken's a good case in point. I'm not talking, you know, Cuomo is different because Cuomo did, again, if the allegations are correct, mm. his behavior is... Yes, possibly illegal. Um, I, I don't have expertise in the in the law on that, so I, I can't say more than that. But uh, I, th- I think Cuomo is in a, is in a different different situation. But you're right. Oh, you know, look at Matt Gates, who's a prominent Trumpist, mm. who's accused of some pretty bad stuff, um, and and there may well be legal proceedings mm. against him. And and uh, Katie Hill, among others, mm. you know, alleges that that Gates has shared sexual images of women with his colleagues, his Republican colleagues on the floor of the House of Representatives on his phone um, and, and and boasted about who he slept with and things like this. You know, Matt Gates wouldn't survive in the Democratic Party right yeah. now, whereas he's inclined, you know, he's seeking to stick it out in a Trumpian way right what, now. What strikes me thinking about, you know, the, the recent people who have resigned from Congress, um, you, know, you have John Conyers from, from uh, Michigan, you had Al Franken, you had Katie Hill in that sort of Me Too moment. The one Republican that shows up um, prominently in that list is Tim Murphy from Pennsylvania, uh, who resigns in 2017. And he was resigned not because he had an affair and because he may have got the, the woman he had an affair with uh, pregnant, uh, but because he pressured her to have an abortion or tried to pressure her to have an abortion. And he was a very pro-life Republican from Pennsylvania, and that's what lost him the political support that he had. Um, you know, I think that sort of speaks to, to to the ways in which the different parties are, are dealing are have a different you know set of, of maybe values or, or things that that shape their uh, or just different when, when they're going to abandon a, a yeah, candidate. Or different whatever. lines you can't cross. Exactly. So in the Republican Party, it's abortion. In the Democratic Party, it's well, there are several of them. Exactly. Because Democrats are also fairly laissez-faire, you know, they, they favor kind of liberal attitudes in terms of people's personal relationships. Mm. I mean, Katie Hill's an interesting case in point. It wasn't, you know, I, I think people were minded to support her mm. because of her sexual identity and saying, well, but they couldn't support her once the issue became... Um, that it was a That employee. it was a staffer. Yeah. That, you know, and, and then it became a matter of, abuse of power in the workplace which brings us back before we before we can't exonerate the democrats completely i mm. mean bill clinton's a big problem for the democrats oh to be sure um and because bill if we're going to talk about donald trump we all ought to talk about bill clinton too in the context of looking at the history of this because the clinton impeachment was an interesting turning mm. point in in this story so how, how does that fit yeah i mean well i think clinton's a very good example of you know, somebody who who Decided to sort of stick out all the scandals that he that he faced. You know, and he had scandals about his um, sexual activity. You know, during the campaign when he when he first ran, obviously throughout his presidency, but especially uh, in the Monica Lewinsky situation and the uh, subsequent impeachment uh, hearings. Uh, and his, I think, political position 
throughout all of it was the same sort of political position that, that most American politicians take in these kinds of things where they just try to ride it out and, and hope that the voters will support them despite particular scandals and see them as political attacks. And I think one of the things that Clinton did during impeachment, he said, look, this is just a political attack. This isn't, you know, uh, speak to my ability to, to do this office. What do you think about how, how to sort of fit Clinton into all this? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I do think that some of the fulsome defenses of Clinton that many Democrats made in the mm. late 90s haven't aged very well, especially no, they, no, post, post Me Too. Uh, and if you listen to the Slow Burn series on, on the Clinton mm. uh, scandals, some of that stuff is tough going. So, so I, I think... I think Clinton exemplifies your the thesis you laid out at the beginning of this mm. episode that partisanship is such a key factor in this and how it plays out. Mm. I'm not sure, however, if in this moment, in this Democratic Party, if Bill Clinton were president and accused of the things he was accused of doing. So, so yeah. all the circumstances are the same, but we cast forward, what is it, 25 years. Exactly. So Bill right. Clinton is now in office instead of Joe Biden. So we're on a different timeline in the Marvel Cinematic Dramatic Universe. universe right? uh, I, I'm not sure he survives because I don't think he has the Democratic support that he had back. They hit the support of his party because I don't think the Democratic Party is in the same place on these questions today. I think that's I think that's right. But let me ask you this. I, so because I think your argument about partisanship is really important, and I think that um, you know so so New York's an interesting case in point. The, the Cuomo situation. New York politics is basically Democratic politics and only Democratic politics because the, 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 the Republican Party is now very small in New York um, as a result of this. And historically, the Republican Party in New York has always been more liberal than the Republican Party. That's right. Yeah. But because of that, the Democratic Party in New York is actually more conservative than people think because yeah. a lot of people who were previously liberal Republicans or would have been liberal, their parents were liberal Republicans, Republicans, are now more conservative Democrats in New York. Yeah. But it's a, it's a New York, sorry, the, the New York story is basically a Democratic story. Mm. And because Cuomo, so therefore there wasn't a partisan question around this, he lost the support of a kind of wide coalition of Democrats mm. in New York. And that, that, that's where, that's yeah. when he had to go. But, but sorry, I think your partisanship thesis has a lot to it. It's 2030, David. Look ahead. Oh, jeez. Okay. We're recording our 500th episode, or whatever at that point, or 5,000th episode. Um, where are we? Is it, So do we look back at this moment mm. and say, oh, the party or the, the culture sorted itself out, and we became more enlightened mm. and in 2030 this behavior doesn't go on anymore or are we still in our partisan camps and the way you interpret these events very much depends on where you are in terms of your political affiliation um i'm bad at predicting the future as we know a couple things strike me uh one is is that the media landscape is fundamentally different and it has been over the past 30 years and especially over the past 10 12 years uh, than it was previously. And I think that has very much yeah, shaped the sort of intensity uh, of, of these calls for a resignation, right? So, so, so pushing someone to resign, you know, being called, asked to resign in the 1970s, you can often sort of find ways to weather the, the news cycle uh, until something else happens. I think that the intensity of that's very different now. Um, I think people's, Americans' understanding of, of 
sexuality and sexual propriety and, and, and the norms around that and the ways in which what kinds of activities are acceptable and what are not are, are fundamentally changing right now. Uh, we're establishing you know, sort of new standards of behavior. There are generational differences about what is considered acceptable behavior and not one of the sort of excuses that, that Cuomo sort of cited. He said, it's like, look, I, you know, I'm old. I'm old. It's like I didn't know any better, which is a which is not a good excuse. But you know, I think the you know people who are you know twenty years old now, thirty years old now, or if thinking about the future, people who are even younger than now are going to have very different ideas about you know what kinds of expectations they have for their politicians in terms of their private lives. Um, they're also going to have different expectations about how their politicians treat their employees and their staffers than maybe has traditionally been the case. Uh, what do you think? Well, I, I think you're right about that. I, I think we'll, we're also, because, and I'm really happy you mentioned the kind of media landscape and how it's changed. And of course, it will likely change in the next decade in ways we can't anticipate. We still use email, for God's sakes. Mm. Um, <laughs> so we're the wrong people. Um, there's also, I, I think, one of the, the one of the things that we will see, though, is there will be a little bit of a statute of limitations on what people did in their prior lives, mm. because so much is out there. You know, they, everything is documented. Everything's documented, and every embarrassing moment anyone ever had is out there. So, you know, the 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 uh, compromising, and I'm using mm. air quotes here, photos of Katie Hill. Mm. Well, I have a feeling there are going to be a lot of politicians who have those kind of photos in, the, in, in their backgrounds in, 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 already do. But well, we'll, I, there will be a point, I think, in which... It won't know, matter. Those won't matter, right? Yeah, Much in the same way as if you know, politicians today admit uh, using marijuana in their youth. Like that used, that's to, a good that analogy. used that, to matter. And, and you know, there was a point in which Bill Clinton had to sort of obfuscate and say, like, look, I, I, I smoke but didn't inhale, which is... Means <laughs> it's the most doing, Clintonian thing ever. It's clearly <laughs> doing it wrong. Um, but... You know, like the you know, thinking about the Key Hill uh, situation, you know, she was the, the push for her to resign was partially because of the photos and partially because of the you know the way that, it, that there was a staffer involved. I think in the future that similar situation will not be scandalous at all because of photos, because most of the people who are you know voters will have photos of themselves or of loved ones or of what have you, and they will not see that as scandals. But they the will staffer see. will still be a problem. The That's, staffer will be the a use problem. Of, it's the use and abuse of power. Um, and, and so I think, you know, the, the, the kind of scandal about somebody having a, 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 an extramarital affair, I think that will be far less scandalous, but the, the, the abuse of power will be more scandalous, uh, potentially. I think they're, they're, the... the, the discourse on that is changing and probably in ways we can't predict um, but we will see when we look back at this in 2030 if if that's right when we from have... our boat when the seas have rise <laughs> and we're all uh, refugees in the water um with that depressing note um time for last drops well, yeah, I guess I'll go. Actually, first. you need to go first because we have a correction, or oh, yeah. we have a addendum, addendum. to last week. Yes. Rather, yeah, and we want to. Yeah. Well, so let's do the let's do the the addendum first. After our last uh, episode on Gary Nash, uh, we were contacted by uh, Marion McKenna uh, Olivas, who was uh, Gary Nash's co-worker, and I uh, believe Miles's boss at one point. Um, and she provides some really uh, helpful uh, added details about. 
about the, the context for the National History Standards and the work that they did at the, at the National Center for History in the Schools. Uh, and so I've uh, added that to the show notes from last week, so you can go back and, and look at that for some added context there, and including she had a link to a, an interview that Gary Nash did uh, just a, a few weeks ago um, that talks about his, his, his reflections upon uh, history education that uh, I would highly recommend to people. And we want to just thank her for both listening and getting in touch yes, and very, adding these details and corrections yes, to very, us. So. We very much appreciate corrections. We, we get things wrong from time to time, one might say, um, and, and we really appreciate it when, when the people especially correct us or, or have uh, things they want to add to the stories we're, we're telling. Because, uh, you know, uh, anyway. Uh, so my last draft, though, for this week, I want to recommend uh, an article in, in The Atlantic by uh, Jennifer Senior what uh, Bobby McIlvain left behind, which is about a, a young man who, who died on 9-11 uh, in the Twin Towers. Uh, and it's about the effect that his death had upon uh, those people close to him, uh, including his, his fiance and, and uh, his family. And looking back at, at the journals he wrote when he was alive and trying to sort of make sense of how their lives has changed uh, as a consequence of that day uh, 20 years later. It's a really... It's very hard to sort of summarize this piece uh, in a few words, but it's a very moving and well-written uh, piece and a very sort of thoughtful piece about the effects that a, a, a single tragedy like that can have on, uh, on, a, on a family's life. So that's why I want to recommend Jennifer Senior's article, What Happened to Bobby McElveen. Excellent. Uh, what do you got, Frank? David, I got nothing. You got nothing. This is deliberate uh, because I'm going on vacation tomorrow or holiday, uh, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on, and we won't have any episodes for a couple of weeks as a result of this. Uh, but I want to tell people to just, especially our colleagues who are academics who are either facing the start of the academic year or for whom the academic year has already started, particularly depending on where their universities are, uh, just relax if you can before things really heat up um and so i'm giving i'm not giving anyone any homework go back and listen to you know go back and if you want to listen to some of the podcasts we've recommended in the past and in recent episodes or some of the things we've read but or just relax just sit outside enjoy sit the outside sun. and enjoy the sunshine the past two years have been a lot yeah so 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 i i i'm just i'm i'm going on holiday and i wish you all well and we'll see you in a couple of weeks that's an excellent note to end on frank <laughs> cheers david cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.